as we've heard. This morning we carry on with this new series, The Desert and the Parched Land, and we're going to be focusing on a story this morning. It was lovely to hear Karen talking about the story that we all bring and singing the songs of worship that remind us of the story that God brings into our lives. And today we're going to read a story from the book of Ruth. Um, Now, it's been a while since I've done this, but quick straw poll. I'm not going to ask for hands up or anything, but if, if you have a Bible with you, or if you can see one in the the pews, uh, the backs of the chairs in front of you, and you'd like to um, familiarise yourself, then Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible. You'll find Genesis, and then you'll find Exodus, and then... Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then a couple of J's, Joshua and Judges, and then finally we get to Ruth. And it's really important because Genesis, we've got creation, and we've got the story of Noah, and then eventually we get through, through Jacob and Isaac and Joseph, and it finishes with the Israelites in cap, uh, just going into Egypt. And then at the start of Exodus, we read that they've been in captivity in Egypt. It's all gone a bit pear-shaped. And then we read about Moses being called, and Moses is called by God to lead his people out of Egypt, and there's an incredible story there. And then there's, there's the law when it seems to all get a bit heavy and a bit intense. And there's, there's, there's the, the first five books are known as the, the Torah, which is um, the giving of the Jewish law. And Moses was given by God these very clear instructions. Well, sometimes clear, sometimes they take a little bit of work to, to understand quite what was going on. But, but that's the first five books of the Bible. And then when Moses dies, Joshua takes over as the, the, uh, God's appointed leader of his people. And his story, funnily enough, is recounted in the book of Joshua. There's a clue in the name. And then we get to the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, we read about a series of different leaders that God calls to lead his people. But it's, it's a dark time. It's a difficult time. It's a time of... Of conflict is a time where, where not only was there, there military conflicts a lot of the time, and there were enemies on borders, and it, 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 there was often attacks and bloodshed and suffering, but it was also a time when God's people were, were wrestling. Do we, do we really want to follow this, this God who's given us this law? And it seems a little bit, we're not having as much fun as the others. You know, we've got a God who, who, who tells us, um, this is the way I want you to live. And, and just over the border, hey, they've got a God of fertility. She's fun. <laughs> Should we go over there and have a bit of that? And so they keep having their heads turned and distracted. And then suddenly God calls them back. And sometimes he calls them back in a very harsh way. And they have to learn a very difficult lesson. But God calls them back because God's given them a law which he knows is the best thing for them in the early formative days of his people for them to understand the relationship between them and their God, to understand how best they should live with one another, to understand that actually the distractions across the rest of the world that they see, they only lead to one way. They only lead to, to destruction. But God is a God who wants to, his people to love him as much as he loves them. And so we see this toing and froing. And just before we get to the book of Ruth, the, the, the last verse in the book of Judges says this. It says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So you get this picture of a, a people who, who are in a state of, of, of rebellion, a state of just doing what they liked. 
And we often look around the world today and we can find it frustrating that actually the Bible has such a, um, such a wholesome, such a good way of living described within it. And of course, there are different interpretations and understandings, but if we have a heart that is true to God, if God is our focus, then he will honour us. But the world, the world is full of people who do as they see fit. And sometimes we can find ourselves in the same position as the early Israelites looking around and having our heads turned, seeing distractions and thinking, well, there's a better way. But actually, time and time again, we come back to God and we say there is no better way. God is God. And so the book of Ruth is set at a time of confusion. Not only was it confusing, but it was a really hard time especially for this family. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, famine is not a good thing today. When there are food shortages, we suddenly see prices going up and and we suddenly realise that we're not quite as self-sufficient as we'd like to think we are. But in those days, in a a society that was very hand-to-mouth existence, famine meant death. It meant suffering. It meant whole families being decimated. When a crop failed, it wasn't simply a case of, well, never mind, we'll just have to spend a little bit more. There was nothing else to spend. Famine meant a family either had to go to the local town and plead and beg and see if there was provision, or they had to seek further afield. And that's the decision that was facing this family that we read about at the beginning of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, the opening few verses of of this book, they're very easy to sort of read and almost gloss over. It's information, but we mustn't do that. If we want to fully understand what was going on, we mustn't do that. Moab was an enemy of Israel, an enemy of God's people. The Moabites were not people who would welcome foreigners easily. And this family wouldn't have gone to Moab unless they were absolutely desperate. Now, here's a map of the region. A big blue bit in the middle. That's the Dead Sea, as we know it today. And you can see the, the ignore the numbers, um, this was the, the, the best map I could find. But you can see on the left-hand side, that red box in there is Bethlehem. Just above, above Bethlehem, you've got Jerusalem. And so the path that the family would have taken would have been probably going up through Jerusalem, then onto Jericho, and then, and then around the top and down into Moab. Moab was a great big area. We're not quite sure exactly where the family would have ended up, but they would have followed the trade route that went from town to town, city to city, and eventually took them down into Moab. Now, this was at a time when there wasn't a state of war between Israel and Moab, but... Um, uh, there certainly it wasn't an easy peace. But Moab was a fertile land. 
It was green and lush compared to the dry, dusty desert around Bethlehem. And so the family make this journey. It would have been about 70, maybe 80 miles, depending on where they ended up in the region of Moab. But they went to live there. The man's wife, sorry, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. You see, the writer of this book, he hammers it home. They, they went to live in Moab, he says early on. Then he, he gives the detail of, of, of the names. And then he says, and, and they, they were from Bethlehem. Yeah, they, they, were, they were part of God's people. They were Ephrathites. And they went to Moab and lived there. Yeah, they, they did something that was unheard of. They did something mad. They did something that was completely against the culture they lived in. And perhaps more importantly, they did something that was against God's law. They took themselves out of the community of God's people. And they went on this journey. And they took themselves into a foreign land where foreign gods were worshipped. The Moabites had many, many gods. One of them, perhaps the most feared, was called Kamash. And many scholars say that human sacrifice was part of the rituals that were used in worship of this particular god. I'm no expert on Moabite gods, but I read that a few times as I prepared for, the, for today. Which gives us an idea of the kind of situation this family were putting themselves in when they went to live in Moab. God's plan was for his people to live together in community. And so when faced with a desperate situation, Naomi, Elimelech, and the two sons have a decision to make. They can either live by faith in community with God's people, praying and praying for relief from the famine. Or they can get up and do something about it. And they can put aside the fact that they've been called to live in community with God's people. They can move away from the community. They can move away from their, their, their family, their friends, their, their faith community. They can move away from society as they know it. And they can go into a land where they know there is food. They have a decision to make. It's a hard decision. It is a tough decision. You see, they make this decision to go. We're not told whether this is the right decision or the wrong decision. But we know it wasn't a decision that was in line with, with God's plan. But we can understand, can we not? the desperation that these parents felt. They can see their children starving. They may have already seen death in the community, we don't know. But what we do know is that famine was a terrifying prospect for them to face. They could see no end to it, and so off they go. But they don't leave God behind. God goes with them. 
because God doesn't abandon them. Because when we make bad decisions, when, we, when, we, when we're faced with a, a situation where we think, well, I, I, need to, I need to pray about this, I need to have faith, or I need to take matters into my own hands and go and do something. So often the temptation is to go and do something. So often prayer is a secondary thought. We kind of, we, we sort of, we get to the end of the day and we've, we've made decisions and we've been to places and we've done things and we've said things and we've tried to, tried to make things happen. And, and then as we're preparing to go to bed at night, we pray. And we can make that mistake. Sometimes we are called to get up and do things. Sometimes we know that God is, is putting on our heart a, a, an action. It might be being a missionary, going off into the mission field. We know that God is calling us to get up and go. So I'm not saying that we should simply go through life and, and every decision that we have to make, we, we mustn't do it ourselves. We must pray and wait for God. No, 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 absolutely not. There's the old adage, isn't there, that when, in a time of crisis we should pray as if it all depends on God and then act as if it all depends on us. What we must not do is put God's will to one side and think we know better. So off they go to Moab. And living there in Moab, after, after a while, Naomi finds her husband dead. He dies. We don't know how, we don't know why. This is certainly, there is no suggestion, this is, this is not God's judgment on the family for, for, leaving, um, for leaving his people. He dies. It happens. She's left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. Deuteronomy 23, part of God's law that I was saying about earlier. Verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. Moabites are specifically listed by God in the law that he gave to Moses as being people who are not welcome in the assembly of God. And here are two of God's people marrying Moabites. This is a complete disregard for God's law. A complete disregard for God's law. But of course, they've lived in that land. They've been brought up in that land. They've begun to get to know, get friendly with Moabites. And some of their cultural ways, some of their gods, would have been creeping into the, the, the traditional Jewish culture that they were used to. And they marry and Deuteronomy was quite clear. Don't marry Moabites. Don't, don't bring them into the assembly of God. Don't bring them into God's people because they're separate. Now, of course, this was Old Testament. But in, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, this is a passage that I, I've, always, I've always struggled with personally. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. I wasn't a Christian when I met my wife. She was yoked together with an unbeliever. But you see, through her, 
I came to faith. And so when we were very early on, we were exploring um, churches where to get married, and she wanted to get married in a church, and I wasn't, I wasn't really very taken by the idea, and I said, at least make sure it's the pretty one. You know, if we're going to get married in a church, make it a nice one. And so she wrote to several pretty churches, and, and we got a couple of emails back saying, you shouldn't be marrying this guy. You shouldn't be yoked to an unbeliever. But you see, what they didn't realise, they didn't give credit to God. Because God had put in the life of this unbeliever a Christian woman who he thought the world of, and Christian family, and Christian friends, and all these voices and influences that made him think, well, I just don't get this whole God thing. To be honest, I think it's nonsense. But I can't get away from the fact that all of these Christian people that I'm meeting, that I'm getting to know, they're lovely. They're friendly, they're kind, they're thoughtful, they show interest in me. They're generous with their time, they listen, I can trust them, I really, really enjoy their company. And what's the one thing they've all got in common? They're all from different walks of life, they're all from different professions, they've had different experiences, they're different ages. The one and only thing they've all got in common is God. So what am I missing? I must be missing something. And God took the unbeliever and put the unbeliever in a family of believers. And now I'm a minister. (laughs) But you see, we must be careful in the way that we use this verse. But for Ruth's situation, her two sons having moved out of the community of believers and into a community of foreign cultures and foreign gods and foreign ways of doing things. The, these two sons marry Moabite women and it's against the will of God. It's against the law of God at that time. It's not, it's not an unbeliever being brought into God's people. This is the opposite happening. After they'd lived there for about 10 years, both Marlon and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. There is this awful situation. There is Naomi. She's gone there with two sons and a husband. And um, 10 years later, she's lost them. They're all dead. She is on her own. Of course, losing, losing her husband meant that she lost the voice in the community. It meant that she lost um, the, the male influence. This was a very patriarchal society. To lose her two sons as well, well, that's the future gone. That's all hope lost. When the husband died, income was lost. But the hope was in the two sons, and now they've died as well, and and that's it. And at this time, Naomi hears, hears news in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing for them. As she and her daughters in law prepared to return home. When Naomi and her family left Bethlehem, when they walked out of a hard situation to go and try and find a better life for themselves, can you imagine how people felt? It wouldn't have been, well, you go with our blessing, good luck. It would have been, no, stay, you shouldn't be doing this. We're staying here because we know this is what God wants us to do. Don't leave, don't leave, don't go to Moab, of all places. But they go. And now we're at the point in the story where where Naomi is facing the return. The return back. 
She's, she's walked out on them. She's left them. What sort of welcome is there going to be? But she knows that rejection in Bethlehem is better than what she faces in Moab. You see, she's heading back to the place where God wants her to be. You see, God is in the middle of our difficult decisions, but God can also work despite our poor decisions. I, um, I was going back to Essex some time ago, and I was on the A12, and you get towards the end of the journey, and you're thinking, I've been driving for a couple of hours, I just want to get there, I'm almost there. You know what it's like, a long journey, and you, you think, I just want to get there. And I knew my turn-off was coming, and I'm sitting in the slow lane, and there's a lorry in front of me, and it's going, it's going slow. Now, I'm not a crazy fast driver or anything, but it was going slow, and time was getting on. And I just thought, I know, I know the turn-off's any, any minute, but I'm just going to nip round. And as I went to, to nip round, I checked my mirrors, and there was a, a string of traffic coming, and I said, oh, come on, so I had to put the brake on again, and, and wait, and car after car after car went past, and I'm getting impatient, thinking, come on. And eventually there's a gap, so I nip out, and I, 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 I overtake this lorry. What I haven't realised is that there's about four lorries in a row, and so the overtaking takes a lot longer. And then there's not a gap to get back in. And so I'm driving along and suddenly I see the sign and I see the chevrons. And I realise that's my turning. And I'm driving past and, and I can't, there is no gap. There is no way I can suddenly put my brakes on without causing an accident. And I see the turning and I think, that's where I need to go. And it disappears into the rearview mirror. And I'm thinking, oh, for goodness sake, Why? And so I have to go all the way up the A12 to the next junction, come off, turn round, come all the way back down. It adds about 25 minutes onto my journey. But eventually I get back onto the right track. So often in life, when we try to force something, when we try to, to, to make things happen on our own timetable because we're impatient and we want to achieve something by a certain age or get to a certain place or, or have a certain title or, or whatever, whatever the, the, the specific circumstance might be, when we try and force it and ignore God's timing rather than just sitting there thinking, well, okay, this is going slowly, but I trust in God and I know that I'm in the right position and I know that eventually... Something will come up and the, the turning will be there and I'll get to where he wants me to be. If, we, if in choose, instead we choose to think, no, right, I'm, I'm going to be like a bull in the china shop, I'm going to nip out into a gap, I'm going to go zooming past, then before we know it, before we know it, we miss our exit. And we have to go on a detour. And God does bring us back to where he wants us to be. But it can cost us. That cost me about 25 minutes, but sometimes when we make these poor decisions, they cost us a bit more. They might cost us a relationship. They might cost us time. They might cost us reputation. They might cost us our job. Any number of things. When we make these poor decisions, when we don't discern what God is calling us to do, when we don't just sit tight and pray, then we run the risk of having to pay the price. Naomi finds herself in that position. She's now having to pay the price for having left her home, for having left the community of God's people. 
With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would have taken them back to the land of Judah. So they, they get on the road. They know that the time has come. These three, these three women. And they get a little way along the road and Amy stops. Maybe they got to the border. Maybe they got a little bit further. We don't know. But we know that at a certain point on the road, Naomi stops and says to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. <coughs> and she pleads with them. She says, go home to your mother's home. You, I'm, I'm not your mother. I can't... I can't do anything for you. I can't offer you a better life. I don't know what I'm walking back into. She says, return home, my daughters. They insist, we'll go back with you. But she says, I can't have any more sons. I haven't got a husband. Even if I did have a husband tonight, you're not really going to wait until they, they, they're born and then they grow up and then eventually they can marry you. That's... That's crazy. You can't do that. We, it's just not going to happen. I cannot offer you that. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. As they wept aloud again, sorry, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods, plural. Go back with her. And so Orpah is, she's reluctant. She's really reluctant. She wants to be with Naomi, but, but eventually she sees the sense and reluctantly she, she goes. But Ruth, Ruth clings to Naomi. Ruth replies with one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. You see, this all comes out of a genuine relationship. I love that statement. I love those words. I always remember the first time I heard them, they had a really powerful impact on me because they're, they're powerful words. I wonder why those words were ever spoken. I wonder why it was that Ruth refused to, to do the, the, the obvious thing, to say, okay, the time has come, you go to your people, I'll go to my people, it's been great, but this is, this is for the best. You see, in every decision we see being made, whether it's a good decision or a bad decision, what we don't see is the day-to-day life. We sort of have the high-level, the high-level report of the story in Ruth chapter 1. And this is the first time we get maybe a glimpse into Naomi's character. There's been a lot of bad decisions made in this story. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, when we, when we approach decisions, 
when we approach these choices that life throws at us, if we, if we look purely through the lens of the world, then we make a worldly choice. But Colossians urges us to, to, to look at it through the lens of Christ, to set our minds on higher things, to make sure our thoughts are focused on God. Because from a thought comes an idea, from an idea comes an act, from an act becomes a, a pattern of behaviour, from a pattern of behaviour becomes a life, and from a life comes a destiny. If we, if we don't think through the lens of Jesus, then the decisions that we make don't reflect his will for us. But what we see here, when, when Ruth makes this pledge of allegiance to Naomi, that's the result of a genuine, deep relationship. I read recently about a, um, a pastor at a church in America who um, he had several thousand people in his church and um, was quite active online. And um, someone had set up a fake Facebook account. And this account, the person who did it, they, they would put certain quotes from sermons on this page and people would think it was genuine because they think, oh yeah, he was talking about that on Sunday. And um, then he'd message them privately and form a relationship and show an interest in them and make them feel like they were, they were friends, like they were, they were special because out of all the thousands of people in the church, this guy had clicked with them. And then eventually, once a relationship had been built, the bombshell was dropped. I'm in a bit of a financial bind. No one really knows about this, but could you help me out? And there'd be requests for money. And when this, this minister heard about this, he was really, really upset because there were people in his church who thought they had this, this really special, private relationship where they'd shared things together. And it was fake. None of it was real. He knew nothing about it. And so eventually there was a, an investigation and, and the person got found out. But it really damaged because people thought they had this relationship that didn't exist, that wasn't genuine, that was based purely on lies. Naomi, for all the bad decisions that she was involved in, let's not knock her. Because she lived a life that was genuine. Because it's only through a life that was genuine that you'll get a response like the one that Ruth gave. Our relationship with Jesus mustn't be fake. Our relationship with Jesus must be genuine. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples and to his followers, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do we want Lord and Saviour or just Saviour? We love the forgiveness, we love the grace, we love the love and the joy. We love a Saviour. But if he's Lord of our lives, then we have a responsibility to honour that to recognise his leading, to recognise his guiding, to recognise that 
when we pray, we look for answers to prayer. When our own agenda clashes with Jesus' agenda, we must be prepared to put our own agenda aside and to follow Jesus. He must be our Lord and our Saviour. Otherwise, it's a fake account. If we put our trust in God, if we put our faith in him, then he will meet us in our decisions. He will guide us, he will prompt us. He will give us a peace in the midst of a storm. He will give us the words to comfort loved ones who are grieving. He'll give us the presence that is needed if we submit ourselves to him, if we can put our own agendas to one side and focus on him. A friend of mine is a, claims to be a staunch atheist. He's a lot less staunch than he used to be. He's a musician. And um, he once went to a church because his wife came to faith. And he walked in and he realized that the music group were okay. But he was a very, very good musician. And he realized that he could add something. And after a little while of being invited time and time again to different church events and different services and no, no interest, no interest, no interest, eventually one day he was having a conversation with a, member, with a member of the band who said, you reckon you can do better? Yeah. Come on in. Come and have a go. All right. Cut a long story short because I'm aware that time's getting on. Now he plays every single week in a church band. Still claims not to know God. But he's the one who says, look, we're rehearsing. We should have the doors open so people can hear outside. He's the one who spends his Friday and Saturday night listening to worship music so that he's, he's, he's got it in his head on a Sunday morning. He's the one that's taken different songs and written them in different keys and things so that they can be used by the band. He's the one that, that's, that's found new songs and said to the church band, hey, look, we should be doing this. Isn't this great? He's the one that can, can quote scripture that he's picked up through different sermons that he's heard because he's been sitting in services. He's on his journey he is on his journey and it all started because he went along and he saw somewhere to serve, a way to serve. But it also, it's all because his wife, his wife invited him time after time after time and eventually he came along. And now he's there and now he supports her in her ministry because she's now gone into ministry. It's probably the closest relationship I know where I've seen someone who didn't know God through relationship and through, through community, through genuine love and care, has been brought to a point where he now says, despite not knowing God himself, he now says to his wife, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. You see, Ruth goes on, and if you have a spare 10 or 15 minutes this week, please read the book of Ruth. It's a wonderful story of God's faithfulness. But maybe the most incredible thing of all, and I just want to finish with this this morning, maybe the most incredible thing of all is that this Moabite woman, this alien, this foreigner, this one who, whose people were not meant to mix with the assembly of God, do you know what she finds herself doing? 
She finds herself turning up in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, that bit of scripture that you always skip past that no one really wants to read because it's just a load of names. We'll read it. Because halfway down in verse 5, we read about Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. In the line, bloodline of Jesus, the ancestry of Jesus, Ruth is there. Why is Ruth there? Because Naomi lived a life that was devoted to God. In an alien culture, an alien country, away from her people. In a land where other gods were worshipped. In a land where she would have faced oppression and hardship and difficulty. She conducted herself in such a way that Ruth gave her life to looking after Naomi. And God honoured that. God took that amazing story and God used that. And in the bloodline of our Lord and our Saviour, there are murderers, there are adulterers, there are Moabites, there are prostitutes. There's a whole bunch of people that you would not expect to be in, in Jesus' bloodline. If you were doing one of these ancestry programmes, this would be the bit where you looked at your bloodline and started crying because you realised what a bunch of wrongers you'd, you'd, you'd come from. Well, Jesus is no different because Jesus came to this earth to identify with you and with me and to say, do you know what? I'm here for you. I love you. Our Lord and our Saviour, he can take the most awful situation, the most appalling decisions that we make, and if we stick with him, he sticks with us and he will use that to achieve great things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in every single decision that we are faced with in life, you are there with us if we choose to consult you. Lord, forgive us for the times when we don't do that. Forgive us for the times when we, when we make those mistakes because we haven't consulted you. Or maybe even when we do consult you and then we decide that our answer is better than yours. Because that happens too. But Lord, we want you to be Lord and Saviour. And we recognise, Father, that sometimes we don't get that balance quite right. And so, Father, this week as we go about our lives, as we have decisions to make, as we face different situations, Lord, help us to re-establish the habit of praying. Praying and waiting on you and then acting once we know what you want us to do. Father, we know that we won't always get it right, but, but we can be more right than perhaps we are now. And so, Father, this morning we, we give ourselves to you. We pray that you will bless us with, with a renewed desire to make you centre, front and centre of our lives. That our minds will be looking at higher things. Our minds will be focusing on you in every decision that we make. Father, we thank you for the way that you used Naomi, the way that you used Ruth, and for the way that you use us. So bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our service, we're going to sing a song that um, talks about looking to God. 
and uh, to, to honouring him. And we're going to leave some space in this song as well for, for you, if you need to take some time to talk to God to, to do that.
Please join us for refreshments after the service, um, but let's pray. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Father, thank you for the reminder of those words this morning and the reminder that they were the product of a life that was, that was lived with all its ups and downs, with all its good decisions and bad decisions, but a life that day to day was lived in honour of you, following your, your grace and your love. And Father, may we be people who, who have that similar, genuine relationship with you as we go out into the world. Bless us, we pray, Father. May people look at us and see you reflected. And may they come to know you in the same way that Ruth came to know you through Naomi. Father, may we have the same impact as we go out into the world this week. Whoever we meet, wherever we go, whatever situations we find ourselves in, Lord God, bless us, we pray. And be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.